0: We began last week a new study through a new book. We finished up Esther a few weeks ago, and so last week we began looking at what might be the most neglected book in the whole New Testament, the book of John's Revelation. We looked last week at this revelation that John was given while he was on the island of Patmos and many of the introductory themes that carry themselves throughout this entire letter. And we turn our attention this week to Revelation chapter 2. The shift is now Jesus is instructing John in what to write to these seven churches throughout the region of Asia. The first church... The one that we will look at this morning is the church in Ephesus. I want to invite you right now to go ahead and open your Bible to Revelation chapter 2. We should be careful any time we come and we hear the Word of God proclaimed that we are not simply listening or, or even have a concept in our mind that we are listening. To a man proclaim something? It should be rooted in the Bible. It should come from the Bible. And how do you know that it is there if you do not look? So I invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 2, where we will be reading in a moment. And but while you're doing that, I want to give us some introductory thoughts, some questions for us to ponder, some things to keep on the forefront of our mind as we make our way to studying this passage. It's a very difficult question, although it comes across very simply. How do you know that a church is healthy? How do you know that a church is healthy? I'm glad this morning that we have visitors from hopefully here enjoying time with family and spending time with their friends and, and encouraging them in this way. And I know that our visitors are members of their own churches. They, they don't come to hear me preach. They have their own pastor and they study their Bible for themselves. Here's something you can take back. This isn't just a sermon directed to our church, but this is a a sermon that is for the Christian, for the person who is on fire for the Lord and willing to sacrifice for God and, and wants to see His kingdom proclaimed and wants to see the lost come to be saved. This is for the man and the woman that care about what God tells us to care about. It begins, first and foremost, with having a concept of what the church is. I asked How do we know the church is healthy? Well, the first part that we should pause and we should say, what is the church? The local called out assembly of believers brought together by a shared confession of faith that Jesus Christ is Lord in their life that they have identified Him as their Lord, that they're willing to live the way that He has told them to live, and not just so that they might be obedient and found to be good, moral, upstanding people, but so that they might be able to glorify God. I think this is what we overlook most often. Our salvation is not to glorify us, but our salvation is actually to glorify the One who, who saved us. It's to glorify Christ. This is what we profess as we say, I've been saved by God's grace. Not by my own works, but by God's grace. It's not my glory, it's His glory. And while I might be transformed, while I might look different, while I might even have attributes that are admirable, they are not of myself. They are of the Spirit that dwells within me. What is a healthy church? It is a church, first, that seeks God's glory. And second, it's a church that knows how to do that. That is my introduction. I'd like to pray before we read our text this morning. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And I'd like to pray that God would help us. That He would help us to not only understand this text, But He would help us to receive this text. That our hearts would be willing to accept the truth that He has given us. Not that we would hear it and know more about Him, but that we would hear it and that we would leave. And by leaving, we would be so compelled by what God's Word has imprinted upon our heart that it would change the way that we walk with God. Let's pray that prayer together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you have given us your word, that you have revealed us yourself to us that we might know you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to know you better. As we spend time in your word, that it would lay its imprint upon our heart, that our heart would be receptive to it. Lord, we ask and we pray as the psalmist has that you would open the eyes of our heart that we might be able to behold the wondrous truth found in your law. Help us to be hearers of the word, Lord. Hearers who respond to it in action. Help us to know exactly what that action is. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The Bible says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And all of God's people said, Our text begins by introducing this first church, and I've already told you that it is the church in Ephesus. And of the seven churches that John is instructed to send this kind of circular letter to, we have to imagine this um, being a letter that would have been passed around not only to the seven churches mentioned, but to all the local called-out assemblies that were in the region of Asia. This is a revelation of John, and it's not coming of John, but it is of Christ. This is God's word to these churches. And so they would have taken it very seriously. They would have let it been an encouragement to them. I mentioned last week, the saddest thing about this being a neglected book is in the first century, it would have most likely been the greatest encouragement to the churches in the second century and the third century. And and we actually find record of that, that if there was any book in the New Testament that was referenced more than any other book in by the early church fathers, it would have been the book of the Revelation because of the encouragement that we find in it. With that said, these churches are receiving this letter and Ephesus gets called out. Isn't that fun? Don't you like it? Have any of you ever been in a sermon where the preacher has called out your name and used you as an illustration? you probably had either one of two responses to that. Either you felt very honored and very uh, well-respected and loved by that, or you felt very, very embarrassed. And if you felt very embarrassed, well, I'll apologize for the preacher that did that. I'm sorry. And if it was me that did that, I was trying to make you feel very honored and respected. Now imagine that it's not just the people that you spend your week-to-week with, but it is the people that you associate with maybe less frequently maybe annually maybe monthly these are the broader churches that would have cooperated together for the glory of God this would be like in our Association of churches a open letter being sent to um, West Park and Ozark and and bloomer in uh, 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 Well, Bloomer Baptist is kind of in Charleston, they have a Charleston address or or being sent to uh, Temple Baptist in Rogers and all of these letters, getting to hear what Jesus Christ has to say to us specifically. Doesn't that sound like a bunch of fun? Kind of terrifies me. That's my business. That's private business. That belongs to me. What are you doing spreading that around? When we understand what church life means, there really isn't any such thing as private business. And th- there's a reason for that. And we might like to keep some things private and, and keep some things to ourselves, but there's a reason why there's no such thing as private business in the church. First, it is so that we can be watched after effectively, not just by a shepherd or an elder or a pastor, but by the church. And, and if you think that it's possible for one person to fall away, well, it's, it's also possible for a group of people to fall away into things like traditionalism and things like uh, routine and, and maybe even just going through the motions of church life. I think it's a good thing that churches associate with each other that they might be encouraged by other churches. We saw an expression of this a few weeks ago as we were holding meetings for revival. And there were five churches present at that. First of all, it was wonderful to see the sanctuary filled up with the people of God. And and Brother Stewart even mentioned it was encouraging to lead the singing and to hear those voices bouncing back at him. That is an encouragement. As I've visited the past couple of weeks with those people that have attended those meetings for revival... Here's something that we can take to heart and be very thankful for. It was not just our church that was encouraged. But these pastors, these other members of the churches that came to worship with us, to pray for revival with us, and all of these things, they have left with a new fervor and a new zeal in their own churches. Bless and praise God for the work that He has done and that He is continuing to do by encouraging us together. Our letter begins to the angel of the church in Ephesus. We mentioned last week as we were studying this that the, the lampstand and that the one who is holding these seven stars, that this is all a symbol or a picture of the churches that were receiving God's Word. What is the angel? We didn't talk about that much. There's basically two ways that we can interpret this or look at this, and I think they're both right, and you're right if you want to choose one. I'll tell you the one that I prefer if you're interested, or I'll just give them both to you and you can decide. The first is that this is a literal angel, a celestial being that is called to look after the churches. That would be unique. This would be the only place in the Bible where we find any concept of an individual messenger of God or celestial being given responsibility over one congregation. The other interpretation is that the angel comes from what the word angel actually means. Or angelos in Greek literally means messenger or proclaimer. And this might even make reference to the pastor of the church. That's the interpretation that I tend to prefer only because the other one would be very unique to John's writing. Not that there's anything wrong with that. This is apocalyptic literature. It might be unique to John's writing. What I see is this is directed to the pastor the pastor of the church in Ephesus write these words and we're reminded who is the one that is writing this it is the words of him who holds the seven stars in his hand i think this is a humbling pastor not only for the humbling message not only for the pastor to receive but for the whole congregation to remember that there is not one man not even an elder board that is responsible for this but that the church belongs to Jesus Christ It is his church. He is the one that is in charge of it. He owns it. His name's on the deed. He's the only one that has any claim to everything that goes on in there. And he gives us this instruction. The church in Ephesus is most likely the most well-known church in the Asia area. Not because it is a capital city or anything like this, but simply because it's famous in the ancient world all by itself. Not only do we have the biblical record that reminds us of the Ephesians' um, place in God's kingdom. Paul ministered there for three years. One of his longest missionary journeys is spent in Ephesus. Aquila and Priscilla with Apollo served there. Well-known names, well-respected. Timothy worked there. Paul's protege spent time there. And while it's not recorded in the Scriptures' um, church history... Well, records or the tradition of church history seems to lean towards John himself having spent an extended time with the Ephesian church. Now, imagine this church having this great legacy of teachers, elders, the Apostle Paul, Timothy, Apollos, Aquila, Priscilla, the Apostle John. Can you imagine? We talk about some churches that are built on the personality of of an individual sometimes, and I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but imagine this church. They don't have just one all-star home run hitter. They've had four back to back to back. And they needed it. Because we know something else about the church in Ephesus, and that was the region that it lived in, was a marvel to the greater Roman culture of the time. In fact, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was found in Ephesus, the temple of Artemis. If you can think back, some of you who are more familiar with the book of Acts, you'll remember that whenever Paul was there, this was one of the issues. As he began preaching for his three-year time or stint there, the The priests who were in the temple of Artemis became upset with him after he started preaching. Not because they disagreed with him or they were upset with a new religion being introduced. They were upset because he was teaching people about the one true God that didn't require gold idols to be worshipped. And their business was making gold idols that people would buy. And when they realized what was going on with these people being converted and everything, they, they were upset. They said, we're going out of business because nobody's buying our idols anymore. Oh, the city of Ephesus was filled with religious people. Not only did he have the temple of Artemis, which I don't even know how they call it a temple. It was really a bank. But he also had the temple of Diana, the fertility goddess. How did people worship her? But all the acts of immorality. It would have been an orgy. That would have been their worship. And this is where this church, this congregation, finds themselves. In the midst of heathens. In the midst of depravity. In the midst of idolatry. That would be a tough place to minister, don't you think? Hey, that would be a tough place to go to church. That would be a tough place just to be a Christian, even if it was in secret. It would be a tough place to serve. In all of these things, the church in Ephesus was not just another religious presence in a religiously full city. Why? I'll say it again. Because the church belongs to Jesus Christ, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. See, Jesus is central to the church. The word holds literally carries the idea, not just of of holding them up, but also being the sustainer, keeping the bottom from falling out. He is the one that holds it. He is the one that preserves it. One of our beliefs at Denver Street Baptist Church is that the church has always existed. There has never been an era throughout history that Jesus Christ, true church, has not been on earth. And why do we say that? Because we believe that our God is so powerful and so great that there is nothing that could come against His church. Not only does this give us a historic reference point as we look back, but it also gives us a reference point as we look forward to the state of the church. Many people, if you're like me, are probably concerned. What's going to happen to the church in 2040? What's going to happen to the church in 2050? What's it going to look like? In many congregations, we look around and say, most of the people in the church won't be here anymore. There's a particular vintage among us that would seem to reflect the church won't be here. Let me encourage you to take your common sense and leave it in the trash can because Jesus Christ doesn't care about ideas that are conceptualized and formed in your own mind. He has said that His church will always exist. The people of God will always exist praise, and worship Him. They will always stand out. And so I tell you, unless Christ come before those dates in 2040 and 2050, I'll tell you where the church will be. Gathered together and praising His name. In writing this letter, Jesus gives a clear and direct commendation, a compliment to the church. Verse 2, He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Man, I would love to hear these words from Jesus Christ. I know your work. I see you laboring tirelessly while while everyone might not see it, while you may not be receiving the praise you think you deserve. Maybe even you recognize that and you are serving with an attitude of humility, not for praise, but you realize that you are working for the glory of God. And in all of these labors, Jesus Christ says, I see you. I see what you're doing. I see your toil. The idea here is literally working to the point of exhaustion. I see your patient endurance. When I say patient endurance, that means just running a long race. But in this context and what this means, patient endurance... I see your long suffering. I see that you are being judged and even persecuted. Remember where this church is located. They have the Temple of Artemis, the Temple of Diana. It is a major trade route in the Asia area. And all of these conglomerations of people that that do not know God, that are rebelling against God, that do not care about His truth or, or love Him, this church is continuing to work tirelessly. It's standing itself up by the work of God. This commendation, I think, is in the work of discernment more specifically. As we look at verse three, I know that in enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, you have, this is actually verse two, I'm sorry, you have identified those false prophets. Those that would come and say that they are men of God or people of God and and they would even be elevated to positions of leadership where they might teach or where they might hold some sense of authority and, and you have identified that they are fake. We should ask, how do we identify fake teachers or fake converts or fake leaders? Very simply, it is by what they do. Their doctrine, their teaching was contradictory to the Word of God. It contradicted the testimony of the apostles. And so the church identified this and called them false prophets and sent them out from among them. We find even later in this letter, verse 6, He has this for them. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans. Jesus says, which I also hate. This church had a phenomenal discernment ministry among them. They were able to identify false teachers and true teachers. Does our church have a discernment ministry? I'll tell you, personally, this isn't something I feel called to. I'm not very good at discern. Well, I'm good at discerning, but I I don't. I don't take a lot of pleasure in, in going and identifying and, and calling people out for being false teachers and calling them to repent. There are some people among Christians who are very good at this, very effective at this, and, and they do a good job and they have a place. I'll tell you why I'm weary of it. A lot of those people that get caught up in identifying false prophets, false teachers, they often wind up like the church in Ephesus. They lose the entire point of the gospel. These Nicolaitans, let's talk about them for a moment. Who were they? It's difficult for us to, to see in reading this in the English, but if we were able to read and understand in the Greek, Nicolaitans is actually a word that comes from two Greek words. The first part, Nike, or Nikeo in the verb form, and the second one, Laos or laos, Nicolations. That's very helpful, isn't it? What does it mean? Nikeo is the Greek verb for I am victorious. I conquer. Some of you are saying, well, how am I supposed to know that? Well, does anyone have a pair of Nike shoes? Nike comes from the Greek word Nikeo or nike. It means to have victory, to be a conqueror. Laos is referencing a body of people or a multitude. What then do the Nicolaitans represent? They represent those in the early church that recognized that there was a problem among Christians that were, we might even call them the, the ignorant Christians, you know. Those that need watching over because they can't watch after themselves. And so we are going to conquer the people. This was a heresy in the church. This is probably where we see the beginning of the distinction that some of you have probably heard between clergy and laity. Have any of you heard that distinction before? I didn't see any heads nod at all. I can slow down if you're not understanding. Have any of you ever heard the distinction between clergy and laity? Have any of you used that distinction before? That's good, because it is nowhere to be found in Scripture. There is no indication in the New Testament that the people of God ever needed to distinguish themselves between those who were in the clergy and those who were laity, those who could not study for themselves. We live in an age where people are able to read the Bible for themselves, not just because it is mass-produced, not just because you can own your own Bible, but because most of us are literate. This is a phenomenon that has not happened in the world's history until our generations. Even my great grandfather was not literate. My, My grandparents We're not able to read for themselves, but we live in a time now where for the most part, everyone we come in contact with, they're able to read and to understand things. They've taken literacy courses. They've gone through elementary school. Most people have made it to at least the third grade. They can read. Why do you need a clerical system to be taught? The Bible has been reprinted in more languages than any other book in human history. We have it available to us in English. If you find the King's English too difficult to understand, we have it in modern translations as well. Oh, we can even get into the issue of textual criticism and we could look at multiple translations at one time and and really put together a picture of what's being communicated without having to know Greek. Consider the privilege that we have. We do not need anyone to help us to understand the Word of God, except the Spirit of God in our hearts. The Nicolaitans established this system of separating who was able to teach and who was not. This was a heresy that existed in the first church in creating this separation and discouraging people from spending time in the Word for themselves because they had all the answers. We might even call this a form of Gnosticism. This is a wicked practice. There are churches today, and I would put air quotes around that, that continue to make the distinction between clergy and laity. This is a heresy that existed in the first century that Jesus Christ addressed Himself. Why do we make such distinctions? There is no distinction in the Bible. We must be encouraged that the, the Word of God exists for us, that if we seek God, if we pray and ask for His help, that He will give us understanding of the Word. But we find ourselves even in this ability. The church in Ephesus didn't have this problem. They, they continued to practice their discerning work. They hated the Nicolaitans, Jesus said. They weren't in among them. They identified this as a false teaching. Jesus commends them for it, and they practice all of these things. But, but here's maybe the greater problem, because what happens when a Christian grows in maturity? They get stronger in their faith, and they start to recognize people that say wonky, weird things. And then they begin to get caught up, perhaps even put this on for size. They begin to serve in ministry. They begin to serve in their church. They begin to meet the needs of their community. They spend time working to labor for God's kingdom. And in all of this, do you think they grow closer to Christ? Or do they become discouraged by the world that would put them down, that would tell them that this is actually what is taught? And they see these false teachers and they they fear for the people that they love that would be led astray by this, those that are weaker than them, those that are unable to practice such discernment. And I believe we find what are the fruits of focusing on those labors. Verse 4, Jesus turns no longer from a commendation or a compliment, but to a condemnation. He says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. That's it. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. What could Jesus possibly be making reference to? The church in Ephesus was one that received a letter from Paul. Paul. And, and Paul gave him these instructions of, of how to be encouraging to one another. He told them of how they were called by God, how God separated them from amongst His people, how they had been grafted into the promises of Israel. He told them how God had established the church. He gave them instructions for loving one another, specifically in the areas of husband and wife, which is a picture of Christ and His church. In the areas of children and their parents, which is an issue of children loving their parents and because they love them, obeying them. In the picture of us in the workplace where the issue of obedience is addressed, Ephesians 6.6, 6, instructing believers not only to win favor with when their master's eye is on them, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Loved ones, is it possible that when we get caught up with all the discouragement, when we get caught up with all of the need of correct teaching and all of the need of solid doctrine and all of the need of this, that we place external obedience above being conformed into the image of Christ? Is it possible that we can serve not just our Master, not just Jesus Christ, out of a place of obedience, but out of a place of doing what we think is right? Heartless service is a disgrace to God's glory. Do you think God is glorified when we do what we are supposed to do with a bad attitude? I don't think He's glorified. Where is the glory in that? You might be the best laborer. You might be the best worker. Think of it like this. You might go to work and do everything that you are required according to your job description. But you leave that place as soon as it's time to leave. You go home. You don't think about anything else. You clock back in as soon as you're supposed to be there. And you just go through the motions. Put yourself in the position of an employer for a moment. You're in an interview. Someone comes into the room and they say, I'm a great worker. I will be here from 8 o'clock to 5 o'clock. I clock out from 12 to 1. That is when I take my lunch. And I do not do anything more than is listed in my job description. I see you have eight bullet points on my required objectives. I promise I will accomplish those to the T. Your second candidate comes in and they say, I want to maintain a healthy work-life balance. I do not want to work all of the time, but with that being said, I am interested in more than just the work that you have put before me. I want to play my part well, and in addition to playing my part well, I would actually like to systemize my work in such a way that my job is no longer required so that I might be a benefit to my other team members. Who are you going to hire? I mean, this stuff is common sense. It's not new. This isn't even so remarkable that we say, wow, this is so incredibly profound that the world is not going to believe this. Jesus Christ is the same in His church. He doesn't want you to come in and do what you're supposed to do just because you're supposed to do it. He wants you to have the right attitude behind it he says i have this against you even though you work even though you toil even though you suffer all of these things i want you to do it because you love me think of it in the perspective of our children raising kids do you want them to do what you tell them to do like little machines and robots that are unable to think for themselves or do you recognize that there is coming a day when you're going to be dead And they will not have you to tell them what to do. And you want them to do what is right with the principles that you have given them because they realize it's well for them. It's good for them. Do you want them to do it because they love you? Many people can become more concerned with conformity to rules, moral behavior, and duty than they are about loving Jesus. External obedience without inward affection falls short of the biblical vision of obeying God from our heart. What matters even more than what we do is why we do it. It's possible, loved ones, to elevate our service to God, our working together for His glory, above even God's glory. It's easier for us to define ourselves by what we accomplish than by our new identity in Christ. It's easier to be recognized by the things that we do than by who we say we are by being grafted into God. For some people, the Christian life consists more of fellowship, service to those in need, witnessing, and maybe even worship, than becoming intimate with Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We cannot face the problems of ministry without the presence of God. This letter begins by reminding us that He is the one that holds the seven stars in His hand. He is the one that walks among the golden lampstands. We are His church. He's not ours. We are His. And in this relationship, He is glorified. We might become discouraged by the the swath and array of different teachings that are contrary to the Word of God in our world. We might even become frustrated by the practices that other church put on and a means of entertaining sheep rather than teaching God's people. Might even go to seminary. And find that we love truth so much in understanding God's Word. We love what it says so much that we spend more time trying to understand it than letting it take root in our lives. It's possible to love truth more than Christ. Some students of the Bible have come to love the content of truth in the Word more than the source of that truth. Biblical theology, systematic theology, both of these are worthy pursuits. But not when they come befo- become substitutes for the pursuit of knowing and becoming like Jesus. We won't look more like Jesus because we filled our head with a bunch of, of Greek uh, vocabulary words and we're able to read in the original manuscripts. and we're, That won't make us more like Christ. You know what Will? When the truth that He gives us is connected to the fact that He is the one that gives it to us. When we live our life according to the love that we have for Him. Jesus doesn't leave this church hanging. I think I'm guilty of this in my teaching. Sometimes we preach against what we could possibly do wrong and and we leave out that there is a practical application Perhaps you have forgotten your first love. Perhaps this church letter to the church in Ephesus seems to be written directly to you. What are we to do if we have forgotten our first love? What are we to do if we have become more duty-filled than God-filled? How can we solve this problem? Verse 5 gives us three steps. Really two. First, remember. This is the same thing we talked about as we closed our study through Esther, isn't it? Why did the Jews commemorate the day of Purim? What was the purpose of commemorating a day of festivities and celebrations that they would remember what took place when God delivered them? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. We're not just told to remember that God loves us, but we are told to remember from where you have fallen. Christ is writing to people that at one point in time, in opposition to the temple of Artemis, in opposition to the temple of Diana, heard the preaching of God's Word and they said, that is my Savior. These are people that at one point in time said, I am able to love only because God first loved me. I recognize that this Jesus Christ of Nazareth was more than a man, but that He was God dwelling in flesh. He came to this world for the purpose of dying, and He was resurrected from the grave. And and all of this wasn't just to prove that God is powerful, but because God is actively working to reveal this truth to us so that my hard heart might be transplanted with a heart of flesh so that I might be able to realize that I am not some puppet on a string being manipulated by a sovereign God who is over all things, but rather God created me because He loves me. And I recognize that I am bewildered by the fact that God could love me. Are you bewildered by the fact that God can love you? Our church teaches that man is totally depraved. From the moment that we are born, we inherit a sinful nature from our fathers. You've heard me, hopefully, you've heard me teach on this from time to time. That's an important doctrine, and and sometimes it's an overlooked doctrine. Sometimes people reject it, and ultimately, I think they also destroy the gospel. But the sad thing about focusing on the depravity of man is, is that it causes us to realize that what am I, am I? Am I even worth loving? Am I worth anything at all? I'm a waste of space. I'm evil without even realizing it. My intentions are self serving. Let us pause there for a moment and remember that the gospel begins with a simple message that God created you. That doesn't negate your depravity. That doesn't negate the wickedness that is in the heart of man. But it affirms to us that God's love is bigger than what you are. It's bigger than we could understand. Despite being totally wicked, God loves you. We think this is something impossible, Honestly, I think I thought it was something impossible until Michelle and I had kids. And I mean, not at first. I mean, when they were cute and we held them and, and they just cried every once in a while, that was easy. But I'm talking about Charlotte now as a three-year-old. She might not make it to four. Her birthday's coming up after Bubba. She might not make it, you guys. She's mouths off to Mama and, 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 mom, and I said, you're going to tell your mother sorry. No you're going to tell your mother sorry. I already did. She's three, I mean, seriously, I feel like I'm raising a teenager already. And I still love her. That's remarkable. There's people that still want more kids. They're nuts. (laughs) We were spending time this weekend at church camp. I had the opportunity to preach at a church retreat. And and Michelle and I, we've got two. I want more. She doesn't. So you guys help me convince her that we need more children. But um, this is everyone's mission. This is coming from the pulpit. This is the word of God. All right. Convince Michelle we need more kids. Um, No, we're spending time with this family. They've got five kids and the wife's pregnant. And they're talking about not stopping. And I'm sitting there like, we don't have to have eight kids. I just want like maybe a few more these people are nuts. I think they understand what it means to love. God wasn't surprised by our wickedness. As a father, I'm surprised by how deplorable my children can be. I am surprised by how much chaos they can cause. I am surprised by how many toys they have broken. God, in His foreknowledge, already knew all of the wicked acts of man. He knew it before He created us, and He still loves us. He still created us. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Sometimes after spending time in the church for our entire lives, I believe it is possible that we forget that God loved us despite being depraved. We focus on the need, and and I'm guilty of this. We focus on the problem that comes with taking depravity out of our gospel presentations. And so we introduce it in, perhaps with more zeal than necessary, and we neglect the fact that the only reason that matters is because God loves us so much so that He has created a path of redemption for us in His Son, Jesus Christ. The reason we work is because He loves us and because I have something to work for. The reason we toil to the point of exhaustion is because God loves me and He has set before me hope that I do not deserve. I deserve hell, yet because of God's love and His grace in my life, I may work to the point of exhaustion that others might experience the hope that I have. The hope laid out in the book of Revelation. The hope of a new Jerusalem descending from the clouds. Because God loves me, I am one who possesses the ability to love like nobody else. While I might live in a time where there are false prophets, while I might live in a time where people make idols out of everything, while I might live in a time where common sense seems to have run run its course and is something foreign to many people, I am able to love them. We might get divided over all of the different political issues that come up. As a matter of fact, I'm so frustrated with the state of the world right now that I don't know which way to look. I'm frustrated with the people that I thought were my friends as much as I'm frustrated with the people that I knew weren't my friends. It's a difficult position to be in. What does the letter to the church in Ephesus remind us? We're not to love the people that we like. We're not to love the people that we agree with we to love the way God loved us. Although He was holy, perfect, and everything in His goodness, standing outside of creation because He is transcendent among us, He still interacts with His creation because He loves us. Although sin necessitates that there be separation between a holy God and depraved man, God made a way that reconciliation might transpire through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that in this reconciliation, He has made it possible for us to love Him. And He's left us here on earth, in Ephesus and in Greenwood, so that we might love our neighbors. We're called to remember where we once came from. But second, we are also told to repent. That's a dirty word, isn't it? We don't talk about repentance enough. And when we do talk about repentance, I just get mad. I get mad at myself for not repenting. Remember from where you have fallen. Remember that God loved you. Remember where you once were. Remember when you first heard the gospel proclaimed before you and you recognized that God was Lord of your life. And you put him at such a position in your life that you were exuberant in everything that you did. You wanted others to know this love and you wanted to share it with them. Remember the love that you once had and... Remember from where you have fallen because you have allowed yourself to forget it. It didn't happen by accident. It happened because you allowed your heart to be hardened. And for that, for elevating service, for elevating external obedience, for elevating truth, all of these things above Jesus Christ, repent! A word that literally means change direction. Stop it! This isn't complicated. We don't have to dive into the Greek. Do you know what repent means? Stop it! Turn around and go back where you were going before. That was the right direction. You got distracted. Something scared you. You got worked up about something. Stop it. Come before God. Say that you're sorry. Repent of your sin. Ask Him to help you in turning. And through the power of His love and His grace, go forward. You might be discouraged because you think you're the only one that is actively repenting. You might be discouraged because you look at a church, perhaps a church that you come from, perhaps our church, and you say, where is our love? We work well, we serve well, but where is our love? Where is the engine that drives us? I've repented, why won't everyone else? This letter is not just to the church, but God addresses it to the individual. Verse 7, he who has an ear, an individual, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, that's that work, Nikeo again. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The church does exist to encourage the Christian, but it exists for much more than that. It exists as a place for the Christian to encourage others. While you might feel like you are the only one that truly understands what this message means, while there might not be a great altar response this morning, while we still might have hard hearts and are unable to respond to the Word of God in a clear way by coming before Him, praying and asking that He would help us to repent, that He would remind us and that we would not forget where we once came from, while we might not see that, God has promised to the one who conquers, the one who is lifted up above these things, the tree of life. He has promised us the glories of heaven. And while it is not wrong to toil and work, He has promised that He is the one that will provide for that work. And if you are faithful to continue to remember, even if you see no one come alongside you, God will be glorified. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us this morning not just to hear your word, but to respond to it, Lord. I believe your gospel has been proclaimed, Lord, and I I pray that if there are any among us this morning that have have heard this gospel proclaimed and, and perhaps it has taken root in our heart, God, that they would repent, and God, that they would be an example to the church of the first love that we have fallen from. God, I pray for the examples. I pray that not one person would be it, but that we would all be an example to one another of what it means to love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.